and welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of IOM3 Investigates. I'm Catherine Williams, Head of Content at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. And I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, the Right Honourable Charles Hendry, CBE. Charles was an active Conservative MP for many years and has broad experience of parliamentary matters. He has actively worked to encourage young people in politics and is a former Minister of State for the Department of Energy and Climate Change. Energy remains a key interest. Charles has supported IOM3 and its engagements in Russia as President of the Russo-British Chamber of Commerce, and we may touch on that later. So Charles, thanks for talking with me today. Um, in these strange times of COVID-19, I know you'll have continued working. So what have you been working on recently? Well, Catherine, thank you. And I'm pleased to have a chance to take part in this discussion. That I think we've all ended up working from home or in many cases in isolation. And uh, for me, I've been able to continue with much of the work which I'm doing, although historically a significant part of what I've done since I left Parliament in 2015 has involved a significant amount of travel, and that's obviously been curtailed. Uh, I used to be going to Russia every month or so, quite regularly to places like Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and Turkmenistan. And so all of that has had to be put on hold for the time being. But I'm still engaged in a number of projects. Most of them have an energy element to it. So there's some which is relating to nuclear, some which is relating to the energy transition, and quite a bit of that is the focus of what I'm doing now. And uh, other parts are just part of environmental and, and sustainability. Obviously, you've continued the work you began as the minister who facilitated increased investment in offshore wind and indeed the person who wrote the report for government on tidal lagoons. So building on your international experience and the work you're continuing, what do you feel is needed to help us move towards net zero and improve decarbonisation? Well, the first thing is, is commitment. And the government has been clear about its net zero commitment, and I welcome that. And I think that at the end of this crisis, we're going to find a demand from people that we accelerate that progress. People in cities in lockdown have been used to much cleaner cities. They haven't had the diesel fumes and the other particulates. They haven't had the aviation pollution. And that they're going to say, look, we want a different world after this. And the government is going to have to respond to that public demand. So I think that the government's ambition is strong. I think the public expectation is, is clear. But what we're then going to need is a roadmap for how it's going to be delivered. Setting a target for 20, 30 years out is something which governments often do. But unless there's a roadmap, it's pretty well meaningless. 
Because what you do know, when that time comes, it's some other poor, hapless minister who's got to explain why it's been uh, failed to be met. And so if the government really wants this to happen, it has to set up a roadmap of what government will do, what it's going to legislate to make happen, what business is required to do, what local authorities are going to have to do, and what we as individual citizens are going to have to do. And the big energy publication, which we expect from the government later this year, I think we'll put in place the first elements of that. But we won't make the progress that we need to without a clear strategy and a clear expectation of who is going to be doing what in order to achieve it. Do you perceive that the government will be supporting individuals to make the required changes? Obviously, currently, we're facing a slowdown in the UK economy and people may be making choices about whether or not they support slightly more expensive um, technologies that help with the environment or whether they support cheaper technologies, allowing more domestic money for their, for their homes. How do government intend to support people to make the changes needed? Well, we've come a long way in that regard. And it used to be the case that in order to facilitate investment in the low-carbon technologies, that that was going to require some extra subsidy and support. But for something like offshore wind, where the cost has come down by two-thirds in less than a decade, it's now very competitive alongside other technologies, historic hydrocarbon technologies. Oil and gas are currently cheap, but it wasn't long ago that oil was $100 a barrel. And who knows what the price of oil and gas will be in two years' time? We simply don't know that. We do know for absolute certainty what the price of the wind is going to be and the price of solar is going to be. That will be zero um, at all times. So we've seen very significant progress in the costs of those technologies coming down. And so you can now do the right thing without it being a massive burden on consumers. Having achieved that with offshore wind... I think what the government should also do is say, okay, where are the next technologies? Where can we really see a new industry being created in a relatively short period of time? And what does government need to do to imitate that? And to me, there are a couple of choices there. One is carbon capture, utilisation and storage. And that enables us to continue to use gas or indeed for some countries to use coal or reintroduce coal because it would then be clean. And the other is tidal, because we haven't begun to harness the power of the seas. And that in both of those, the UK has a built-in advantage because they're technologies where we have a very substantial amount of knowledge. We also have a very good resource. We have the second best tidal resource in the world after Canada. And so if we're wanting to see progress there, then let's pick the technologies where we can see the UK has an advantage. Let's invest in those and then put the same commitment into them that we've done with offshore wind, see those costs come down, and then be able to roll them out. And so you're delivering the low-carbon solution that people want, but you're not going to be a massive burden on their bills. I think alongside that, we've also got to look at how we make our homes more energy efficient. And this is an area where I think the government can give a boost to try and pick up some of the unemployment that will sadly happen because of the coronavirus crisis that many of our homes are not properly insulated. The new ones are pretty good standards. Uh, Historically, though, there's an enormous amount of retrofitting which is required. 
And I think, therefore, there's a strong case for the government looking at how it can help to facilitate an improvement in the energy efficiency of our older housing stock, which delivers an immediate benefit to the people who live in it. They can be warmer and they can heat their homes more affordably. So there's a big win for consumers there. And that could be the sort of project which I hope the government will look at as to how we move forward out of the crisis. Thank you. Um, And obviously, those areas you touched on are huge for materials with potential insulation um, and also the issues surrounding marine and tidal with biofouling and uh, selecting the correct materials or coatings for the, uh, the processes used in tidal. Obviously, the UK is looking forward to hosting uh, COP26 next year, uh, which was unfortunately delayed. Glasgow's looking to host that. How can the UK capitalise on the opportunity presented by this? That's a really good question because there's a fantastic opportunity for us. And we've also now got 18 months to prepare for it. So we're in a strong position to really take advantage of this. We don't yet know the structure of the discussions at COP26. We don't know how many people will be attending that had been expected in November of this year. It would have been 50,000, 60,000 people. Well, I can't believe next year we're going to be talking about those numbers. So the focus may perhaps be on the government discussions. And I think what the UK will want to show is the areas where it is demonstrating global leadership. So we'll say, look, look at the offshore wind industry. Ten years ago, that industry did not exist. And now it can be developed at scale in many places around the world. And with the next step into floating turbines, then areas which currently can't be used because the waters are too deep, like the west coast of the United States, that they can then start to roll out offshore wind as a technology of choice as well. I think as well, we can then say in the UK, look, this is how we're going to make carbon capture work. We were historically a great coal nation. Uh, that we were, were there, obviously, at the start of the Industrial Revolution. And we're now one of the first countries to move away from coal. But if we can then be one of the pioneers of clean coal, then that's a globally significant opportunity as well. And the other aspect, which I think we're going to need to show, is that post-crisis, post-COVID-19, we are able to look to rebuild in a way that is much more sustainable. And that means accelerating, I think, the shift towards sustainable forms of transport, electric buses or hydrogen buses. It means cleaning up our cities. It means in terms of the rail infrastructure, greater electrification of that. And I think, therefore, for people coming to the UK, we will be able to show that you can start to go back to life as it was, but in a much more sustainable way. We can accelerate the progress And that's something which I think becomes a message which the world wants to to hear. There's no doubt in my mind that other leaders around the world are thinking in the same way. And the package which has been proposed by Chancellor Merkel and President Macron uh, as part of the EU recovery package has got a very strong sustainability element to it. And they're saying, look, if we're going to put money into industries to help them, then they've got to come forward with a plan for how they decarbonize. If they're going to rescue the airlines, then they've got to show how they're going to become more sustainable in the future. And so I think the world is going to be looking forward to this sort of discussion because there's a great deal uh, which we have in common and we're all looking to achieve the same sort of results. And I'd also then add into that 
the countries which one might have thought could be more resistant to it. The, the ones who've got economies which are based on hydrocarbons. And what I find from those, be that Russia, the Middle East, and Kazakhstan, they are also looking at how they accelerate their low-carbon transition. What they want to achieve is a, an ability to uh, continue to use their oil and gas, but to recognize that the world's demand for that will start to decline, perhaps decline more rapidly than had been expected. And therefore, they've got to look at other ways of providing the power and the energy which their own populations are going to need. So this is a global change. Some people say, what about America? What about President Trump? Uh, well, well, November next year, he may or may not be president. We don't obviously know that at this stage. But even in America, you look at what the corporations are doing, and they're accelerating their low-carbon agendas. If you look at what the individual states are doing, they're doing exactly the same. And so the companies and the state governors who ultimately have more say over this than the president, they are continuing to decarbonize the United States. And so that I think we'll find countries from right around the world saying, yes, we want to have a cleaner, better future, and let's work together to try and deliver it. And the UK uh, co-hosting it with Italy will be an, an ideal opportunity, an ideal place to make that happen. Excellent. Well, we'll uh, look forward to the outcomes and discussions that take place next year. Um, I think sort of obviously governments are moving towards this. People are keen to have a better place for their children to grow up in. And I think there needs to be support for technologies and for development of new processes. So in addition, do you think there will be more discussion about uh, scientific education and support for young people to move into this type of technology? I, absolutely, yes. And I think the solutions to the problems we face now are as much about new technology as they are about uh, new sources of power. So it's not about the natural resources as much as how you then harness that. If we're going to have a smarter system, so we spread demand more effectively across the day, we use more uh, of our equipment in our homes and our businesses at night when there's an abundant excess of supply over demand, then we've got to have more intelligent systems, both in the equipment and generally in the home. Smart technology is going to be a really important part of this solution. We're going to continue to see new technologies coming forward. Uh, there are the whole time that we're seeing new ideas coming out of universities and businesses, uh, which are going to accelerate this process. And so there's countless trillions being spent around the world on how we actually move this further and faster. And that therefore the need for people who understand the technology, who understand what is possible, becomes that much greater. I remember as a minister that every day people were writing to me saying, look, I've got this brilliant idea and this will solve all the world's energy problems. And I would turn to our fantastic chief scientist in the department, David Mackay, and say, David, what do you think of this? And David, who was a physicist at Cambridge, would say, this is a good idea, and this one is a brilliant idea. This one probably won't work, and these are physically impossible. They cannot happen. And to have the knowledge, therefore, of scientists and specialists who can give clarity and guidance to ministers and to others who are going to be making decisions is going to be an absolutely fundamental part of this progress. 
we are, I think, in an era of unprecedented innovation. The opportunities to get involved and to help to make that change are greater than they've ever been. Uh, not just because the demand is greater, but because in the past it was many fewer institutions which were involved in doing it. And now individuals in their own homes, small groups of people, they can all be playing a part of this because we're now all going to be so used to working from home and interacting in a different way. And so the opportunity to come up with new ideas and to really to help to take those forward is going to be that much greater. Add into that, not just government support, but the support from big companies. And then you can see how these ideas can be turned from a concept to a reality more quickly than has been possible in the past. BP, Shell, the two British largest oil and gas companies, both have committed to net zero by 2050. That means that even in a time of a much lower, lower oil and gas price, then they are looking for those new technologies where they can make a real difference. And if they're going to continue to give their shareholders the, uh, the returns, the rate of returns which they've been used to in the past, then they've got to make some slightly risky investment decisions which will pay big dividends if they come good. And therefore, areas, I think, which have struggled to find finance in the past will now find it easier. So this is a really exciting time because the commitment is there to try and make the transition happen. The funding is increasingly there to make it happen. And the, the need is there. So all of those things have come together. And, but at the heart of that is science and technology. As politicians, it's very easy to have a great idea and to think, wouldn't this be wonderful? You actually need to have people who are engineers, who are technologists, people who can say, can you do it? How do you do it? Uh, and can you do it on the time scale which you're aspiring to? Thank you. Um, so touching on the UK energy landscape as it is, you've mentioned really good initiatives coming out of UK companies there. Um, where would you like to see change happen in our energy mix? Um, obviously, we've got work going on on new nuclear sites at present, which will take a while to come online um, and also require huge amounts of investment, but are obviously carbon neutral. So where else would you like to see work happening? I think we probably need to rethink our approach to nuclear, uh, that Hinkley is moving ahead. And that has been possible because it's been essentially a government-to-government -government agreement between our government, the French, and the Chinese government. If you're looking to get companies to spend the tens of billions which are necessary to build a nuclear power station or two side by side, uh, if you're encouraging businesses to do that, then I don't think they can take the level of risk uh, which is being required because essentially they could put those billions in and who knows what the demand will be at the end of the 10-year construction period. So I think moving forward, if we want to see nuclear as part of the mix, and I think it's a strong case for it, both the traditional technologies and also particularly small modular reactors, if we want to see that happen, then I think government's got to be more actively engaged, potentially to build it on its own balance sheet and then to bring in the companies to run it subsequently. And then that wouldn't accelerate the program. It takes all of the construction and the political risk out of the project, massively brings down the cost of doing so. And so we can have nuclear in the mix uh, without it being something which has got an, a balloon payment essentially attached to it, which is the cost of capital and cost of finance. Uh, I'd also like to see the government uh, focusing 
uh, on the areas of renewable activity which will deliver the sort of biggest bang for buck. The, the ones where at scale you will be able to really make progress and where you'll be able to bring the costs down. Uh, we've spoken about how that's happened in offshore wind already. I think it could happen in tidal, not quite to the same extent as it happened in offshore wind, but it could significantly happen as well there. Um, and I think we also need to then say that it, all of the solutions aren't necessarily just at big scale. We will need big power plants uh, in order to deliver a more electrified society. As we do more in terms of heating through electricity, we do more through transport through electricity. But there's also a very important part of this, which is where households, communities, small businesses can be part of the solution as well, and they can also be generators. And therefore, continuing to see the rollout of small-scale solar, uh, perhaps small-scale wind, uh, that uh, air source, ground source, heat pumps, what can be done at a very localised level in order to uh, accelerate the transition. So uh, there's a, everybody has a part to play in this. And uh, the nature of the challenge is so great that it's, that it's not just a matter of this as being for big businesses or governments. This is an area where we do need to involve the public as a whole, not just because they have to change their patterns to reduce demand, but also because they can do more in terms of home generation to actually bring this forward more quickly. So how do you feel that we bring the public with us on this journey? Obviously, the scientists and engineers are keen to be getting their new technology in place. How do I, as a normal householder, help and support this move and change? I think we have to step back a little bit first. We have to offer some help to those individuals because it's really confusing as to what technologies people should use. That if you have got a little bit of funding available, do you go for solar? Do you go for better insulation? Do you go for an air source heat pump? What do you do? And so actually increasing the amount of advice which is available to people, which gives them sort of general independent advice as to how they can use any investment they can make, I think is an important part of that. Because once you've made that decision, you're locked into it for 20 years. If you put solar panels on, on your roof, well, that's going to be your renewable technology over that period. So I think we need to do more to help people to understand what is best in their own circumstances. And that's going to be determined by the age of their home, where their home is, whether it's face south-facing or whatever. So there's a whole range of different things that needs household-by-household advice. Then I think that you need to have financial tools which facilitate this sort of investment. And so if people are looking at where they can invest some money and they can get a rate of return, which is slightly better than putting it in the bank, which is basically zero at the moment, then what does the government do to encourage that and to incentivize it? And so that then they think, okay, I know what I want to do, and I know it makes economic sense as well. Now, in some areas, that, that sort of encouragement and exhortation won't be quite enough. In some areas, I think we're going to have to require more compulsion legislation because that people can be very slow to change their habits just simply because they don't get around to doing it. So we've been talking about uh, roof insulation for 20, 30 years, and it's still only just about half of the homes in this country have got proper roof insulation. 
So I think we probably need to start looking at say, ways of saying, look, every householder should, in the term of their ownership, improve the energy efficiency of their homes. And if you don't, then you will have to leave something in a, uh, an escrow account for the people who take over your home, this is private sector, of uh, own, owner accommodation. And so that then there is something with which they can use to improve the energy efficiency. Now, this will cause a bit of an outcry in some areas. Uh, but I remember that when we were moving from the old incandescent light bulbs and we were being, the EU said they're all going to be phased out and some newspapers ran campaigns saying, this is terrible. Go and buy as many of the old light bulbs as you can. Fill your cupboards with them. And I do hope nobody took that advice because it was some of the worst advice ever given because that it had been much better to move to energy efficiency bulbs because of the savings which you start to make immediately on those. And so sometimes you have to say that we are going to phase out these approaches which are outdated, which are inefficient, and we're going to require a more efficient way to come forward. We've done it with gas boilers historically. And so I think that we also need to look very carefully at what we should make compulsory, what we should legislate to make happen. So we've touched on some of the challenges here in terms of the general public. What do you think that the challenges facing us globally and in terms of government are? How do we make the right decisions, find the right technologies and move to better solutions? I think the best, uh, the, the most progress happens where you have a substantial investor to make it forward. Uh, when, uh, both as a minister and subsequently, I've seen in universities, every single university has a team who are making a better battery. And uh, they all believe that they have made some difference which will make it cheaper, more efficient. I think the reality in the battery sector is it's the ones who've got the multi-billion investors behind them. And be that Elon Musk or be that a major company who are going to help to, to take this forward. And ultimately, it's going to be investability, which drives forward, which technologies get chosen and become the winners, rather than necessarily the one which is marginally better. When I was a minister and I had a meeting with the uh, Tidal and the Wave companies, and there were about 40 of them in the room together. And they were all convinced that they had the perfect technology for harnessing the waves or the, way, the tides. I said, realistically, there is only scope for one or two companies, technologies in this space. And therefore, you need to talk to people around this table and find out which ones you can work with, because ultimately you're going to get uh, nothing out of the process, or some of you will get everything and most will get nothing. And so sometimes people have to be willing to compromise a little bit, to share a bit more, to collaborate in order to make greater progress. Because if everybody tries to do things in their own little silos, then ultimately that isn't, can be an enemy of, of progress, even if the idea itself is absolutely brilliant. So it's linking up what investors are prepared to go for and linking that up with the, uh, the, the people who can help to make it happen. We are seeing change happen much more quickly. And it used to be said that uh, a new technology required 30 years from invention to commercialization. Uh, well, we're now seeing that being significantly uh, reduced. It's still a good number of years, but everybody can see that the requirement is there. 
Many more companies are supporting research and innovation. In 10 Downing Street, the Prime Minister's office are very, very keen on science and technology, research and development. And that's going to be right at the heart of the government in a way that I can't uh, recall, uh, certainly in the last sort of 40, 50 years, of having this as an important part of government policy. And so, again, there's a lot of areas where these opportunities are all coming together. But the risk is that it's too compartmentalized. And then ultimately, we end up seeing it as being something where the Chinese or the Indians can steal a march on us because theirs is a much more structured, cohesive approach. If you had to pick your top three energy technologies for the next decade, what technologies would you be backing? Uh, do you mean this is me as an individual or as a, uh, from a public policy perspective? As a public policy uh, representative. And for the UK or are we looking globally? I think at this point for the UK, but if you're willing to pitch in globally, then uh, I, will, I will take that as well. Uh, so offshore wind, offshore wind we've shown can work, we've shown the cost can come down. And the UK is a global leader. So absolutely big tick in the box for offshore wind. Carbon capture. I think carbon capture has got extraordinary uh, potential. It's also something where we're continuing to see coal-fired plants being built in China and India and elsewhere. So let's find a technology which can be retrofitted to them and to clean them up as well and to greatly enhance the world's progress. Um, I'm going to give four, if I may. Um, and then tidal, I think, should be explored further because I do think that every day people who live near the sea look at the tide coming in and out twice a day and say, we should be harnessing that. We've been saying it since King Canute, and so we need to be able to find a better way of delivering on that extraordinary resource. And then nuclear in terms, particularly of smaller modular reactors, small nuclear technologies, I think have got a fantastic amount of potential. And again, the UK has got some brilliant work being done in universities where we can lead on that. Um, I've left solar out of that because I think for the UK, we will see some progress with solar. And we've already seen more than many thought was possible. Uh, but ultimately, there is a limit to how much that can work for the UK. But if we start looking globally, I think then for a continent like Africa, solar has got phenomenal capability, so is hydro, uh, so that you can actually then start to harness the natural resources. And Africa could have virtually free and limitless power. Uh, I think this ought to be Africa's century in a way, because when so much is about energy, then the power, the global power linked to energy, um, I think will shift to those who have the most abundant natural and renewable sustainable resources. So I think there are different solutions if you're in the Southern Hemisphere or the Northern Hemisphere, uh, and that each country will choose the technologies according to uh, what they have access to. And uh, there are some very interesting points there. Of course, the UK with small nuclear reactors has a lot of experience from Rolls-Royce on uh, that. And um, also in Africa, we're seeing a lot of the mining companies investing in hydro and solar to power their mining work. So uh, there is scope and things are moving there. Yes, definitely. And uh, I think also from the Institute's perspective, that in all of these areas, its members have 
something which is going to be in demand and where they can bring some really specialist skills. And so I think from, uh, from a purely from an institute angle, then all of this plays to the strength of its members. And so finding the right way to help them to engage in that process, to involve them in government discussions and in forums, uh, and so that we can actually harness that extraordinary capability uh, is going to become a great opportunity for the members. So, um, Charles, obviously materials and the material cycle become hugely important to all of these technologies. We find that particularly in offshore wind, composites have driven development of the turbine blades and rare earth metals are required in the gearboxes. So we see that some very traditional materials engineering is involved in new technologies and the material cycle becomes part of the heart of different energy solutions. Without doubt. And I think also what it shows is that we can't predict what the need's going to be in a few years' time. Because that sentence, if you'd said that 20 years ago, people wouldn't have known what you were talking about. And then we saw relatively small blades. Now the blades on an offshore wind turbine are about 100 metres long. And so what's required to give them the strength to be able to withstand incredibly strong winds out at sea has been a fundamental rethinking of that. They've rethought the whole engines and the the gearboxes. So they've taken the gearboxes out of many of the offshore wind turbines and gone to a direct drive system to try and take out the number of parts which are moving and can go wrong and can get corroded in a salty environment. And so from uh, that, all of that is innovation and looking at the materials and how they can evolve and how they can best be modified and used. And uh, I think we're aware as well that in some areas that we're looking at finite resources and often hard to reach places. And so that the rare earth materials and the lithium and the cobalt, uh, part of the, the battery elements, um, then what's going to be the best way of using those and how are we going to make sure that we deal with that in a way that is most sustainable overall. Excellent, thank you. So in terms of recyclability and reuse, um, there will need to be industrial move towards this process, um, which brings in many, many other industries and organisations. Where do you feel that the role of a professional engineering or science body can help in this process and provide the best advice? Well, I think there's a number of different ways in which it can be involved and can be helpful. The the forums which it organised, which I've been pleased to take part in, that some of those enable people to become much more aware of what the opportunities are, and some of those are international. So it helps people who have got an expertise in the UK to be involved in applying that knowledge and expertise uh, in different parts of the world as well. The Institute can also help people just generally through its mailings and its briefings to keep people abreast of the change and the progress which is happening and so that they can see how they might be able to link into it. And also it can help to highlight opportunities, direct commercial opportunities where people's skills are going to be needed. So by a program of continued improvement and upskilling and training and support, then all of those are helping to ensure that the people who are the members of the Institute are going to have the right sort of expertise in order to make a a real difference. 
And uh, that applies to your members here in the UK and obviously right around the world as well. So yes, obviously we have um, quite a significant number of members in Russia, which is an area where you're very active. And you'll be aware that some of the political history of some countries is quite different to that of the UK. How do we help to professionally develop our members and bring positive developments to the energy sector in a global situation? I think we should start off by recognising how much respect there is for the UK expertise and the UK structures. And that one of the reasons why the Mining University of St. Petersburg was keen to form the chapter for the IOM3 in Russia was because it recognises that the IOM3 is a global leader in this area. And in so many other areas as well, the UK is looked to as having an extraordinary history and a great depth of experience and expertise. So uh, we've got natural partners there. And often it, they say to us, look, come on, why aren't you here more? Why don't we see more British businesses and British specialists? And why is it always the French and the Germans and the Italians who are making the effort to come here? So I think what we need collectively to do is to make the case to the Department for International Trade about how, in a post-Brexit world, we're going to actually reach out more to many of these countries and to sell the expertise which is there. The partnerships which are developing, as I say, the partnership with Russia and the new chapter there, that's all about how they can give additional skills and additional expertise to their own people who are working in this sector. And so we're working with an open door in this regard. And they're saying, we need to progress. We need to do things in a more efficient way. Where can we find that expertise and skills base? And then they're very keen to look to the UK and to the Institute as a natural partner for doing so. And it's more than lip service, because in the conferences which we've had in Russia, uh, we've had ministers taking part, Russian ministers taking part, people from the Russian presidential administration. We've had senior people from across industry and government uh, participating. And that for, for that to happen at this level, I think, shows a real focus within the high levels of the Russian government, that they want to see this progress and they want to see this cooperation go forward. Charles, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you so much for guiding me through the energy landscape. Catherine, thank you so much. I, I very much enjoyed it. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that my answers are all correct. Uh, I think in the energy sector, there's so many different competing ideas and theories that people listening to this will say, well, why didn't he mention that? Or he shouldn't have spoken so much about that. Um, but I think what it just shows is this, this is a really dynamic and important part of our country today and need of our world. And we all want to see change. And it's a question of how we best deliver that. And if this helps to stimulate a dialogue and to bring other people's ideas to the fore, then I think that's really helped and will have achieved its objective. And, but I very much enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.